this morning, I am willing to be stretched way beyond where I feel usually comfortable. I'm going to be absolutely vulnerable with all of you and just throw the following question out there. How do you experience me? Boom, there it is. How do you experience me? Although jarring and frightening, this intensely provocative question, how do you experience me, is prescribed by psychologist and spiritual director Chuck DeGroote. It is a means toward reconciliation and healing. And he suggests that not only leaders and department heads ask this question to those they lead and interact with, but he says all people should pose the question to their friends, colleagues, and those who seem to be on the other side of the aisle or beyond our places of comfort. So, how do you experience me? How do you experience me is not a mere performance focus or results oriented survey question. Like, how do you like my work and did the women's retreat or the women's tea and fashion show run smoothly? No, this question is truth telling on a deeper level. It cannot be summarized in 50 words or less and it cannot be answered within a five minute time frame. It is asking, how do you feel when you are in my presence? When we are in the presence of one another? Do you feel seen and heard or do you feel invisible and or objectified? Do you and those around you feel othered, whether intentionally or unintentionally? Am I a low-key, passive-aggressive, micro-aggressor? Essayist James Baldwin has this quote, and it says, I don't believe what you say because I see what you do. Ouch. So the question, how do you experience me, might just mean, does what I say align with what I do. It is a love ethics question. Power plays a role in the posing of such a question for those on the margins and fringes of society and life are often told without solicitation or invitation how they are experienced by those who appear to be at the top of the center or to stand in places of privilege. In addition, marginalized folks usually find themselves fearful of expressing how they experience those at the center or top. But no matter where we are on our journey, the question needs to be asked in all directions if healing and reconciliation is to happen and bridges of love are to be built. While identity and status seem to help flesh out some of the answers to the question, and sometimes these elements can mar and distort how we see the heart of it, the question is meant to offset 
the external and force us to look at the characters, the hearts, the minds, and the souls of both the sender and the receiver. The one who asks the question has to be ready to take some possibly humiliating hits. And the one answering the question has to take the time to reflect and muster up the courage to tell the truth. Power dynamics are not only present in the wider social, cultural, political context, but many of us can relate to the challenges that power presents in the workplace, in the classroom, in our families, in our places of worship. And power dynamics are afoot in Matthew's gospel. Fear operates as the emotion in opposition to love, and we see this in John's first epistle, for it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out all fear. Moreover, the opposite of love as an action or practice is the act of othering. Writer of the book entitled Othering the Original Sin, Charles Billinger identifies othering as an updated version of the words prejudice, discrimination, difference, opposition, oppression, and bias, and scapegoating. As such, it occupies an important place in the attempt of human beings to understand their own tendency to think and act along the lines that divide the human race into different groups and to treat the disfavored groups badly. Let me emphasize that othering is not only a practice of the powerful and privileged based on race, ethnicity, and religion, but everyone has participated as a practitioner on some level. And Bellinger notes that it can be acted toward the disfavored group. Disfavored groups can be determined by gender, sexuality, economic status, age, and something very essential to my heart and research mental health, and psychological disorders. Othering may focus on groups, but it can also be defined as the means to single out and scapegoat the individual. Now, some commentaries identify Jesus's interactions with the religious leaders as Jesus against Jerusalem. And this suggests that Jesus was against them. He was the culprit. He was the one practicing othering. However, I see it differently. It was Jesus who was othered, approached with bias and ultimately scapegoated. He is seen as the problematic one rather than those who come running to get him, those he allegedly silenced. It is peculiar that Jesus has become a target simply because he has justifiably silenced the tone police. Jesus is not against them, nor is he trying to annihilate them with some religious apologetic argument. He does not see them as opponents. He is allowing them to take a glimpse of how the people experience them and how they could be experiencing him. How do you experience me? The question is tough because the one asking it has to be brave and humble enough to take in the responses, face the responses, reflect, 
self-examine, and then grow. How do you experience me? Do I, like the leaders in Matthew's passage, use God's commandments to test you and trip you up? Am I using the commandments to love God and neighbor as a means to practice othering, shaming, and exclusion? In summary, am I weaponizing the sacred? The leaders gathered and conspired using holy texts and commandments on love as tools or props in their performance of exclusion, all the while missing the point because they were fixated on tripping Jesus up rather than taking in his words. And all these so-called important people and their cronies came after one lone Jesus. And this is counter to the leadership of Moses and Paul, which expresses a connection between love and suffering and an ongoing relationship or closeness with God. And teachers on contemplation and activism, Richard Rohr and James Finley, identify the pathways or the two main portals that lead us closer to God as love and suffering. And Rohr says, great love and great suffering. To love is to find oneself suffering as a labor of love, to seek and to operate in God's definition of justice requires great love. And we will suffer for God's sake. We suffer for God's sake, for God's definition of love. Paul expresses a vulnerability in knowing how the Thessalonians experienced him, who in spite of great opposition did not operate in deceit with impure motives and trickery. He did not seek to impress or please people. He and his companions suffered and had been shamefully mistreated while on their journey. Moses often suffered greatly and struggled with his own issues. For Moses, the people God commanded him to lead were, and I shall use a very old word, you might know it, trifling. Do you remember that word, trifling? It's a bit more exasperating than just people being trying. They were trifling. You have to look it up. <laughs> Scripture says there, are never, there was never a prophet like Moses, and the Lord knew him face to face. Moses knew what it meant to ask the question, how do you experience me? And how life-changing those answers were for him. It is like being challenged by a truth-telling mirror. It tells not how fair one is according to one's physical beauty, but how fair one is concerning their inner life and character. Both prophet and apostle had faced big failures because of their murderous past. Yet, they grew as authentic and self-aware men of God. They suffered throughout their journeys, and those sufferings function as symbols and expressions of their great love for God and for their neighbor. And the willingness to love and serve God and one's neighbor requires an openness to failure, especially one's own failures and shortcomings. I like the connection between the question, how do you experience me, 
and James Baldwin's quote, because it moves me to wrestle with the tensions between my espoused theology and my theology in use or practice. For example, the leaders knew the law and espoused the thought to love God and to love one's neighbor as oneself. But their actions presented a different understanding of the law. The religious leadership went to Jesus back to back three occasions with the intention to trip him up and to silence him, not to show love. And many interpretations of this passage seems to suggest that they were fully, fully aware of themselves, but I do not buy it. Like many of us today, we have the shades pulled down right in front of the things that we may need to confront about ourselves, and we outright assume that we know enough to no longer be open to more opportunities to learn and grow. Pride sets in and we appear at least to ourselves to be above asking friends and family, colleagues and our children, our bosses, and especially our spouses, the question, how do you experience me? The leaders desired to other and silence Jesus not only because he got everything right, but because he affirmed to the people how they, the people, experienced the leaders. And perhaps the people were just too afraid to say it out loud. The leaders had encountered failure but would not face it and grow. Their intentions to be holy and godly did not coincide with their actions. Wow. How do you experience me? That is a very scary question to go around and ask people. Just stop and think about it. I must say that I experienced Jesus as the embodiment of the kingdom of God, the embodiment of the beloved community. While I experienced the leaders and the other characters in this passage as the gatekeepers. Of course, they sensed that on some level, although they were showing up in large numbers against one lone Jesus, that they were no match for him. A theology of love and love ethics, according to Bell Hooks, is a daily practice that infuses the love ingredients of care, commitment, respect, responsibility, and knowledge. And another writer on love and reconciliation reminds us of how othering can subtly creep in and take hold of us by stating, I judge myself by my actions, but I judge others, I judge myself by my intentions, excuse me, but I judge myself, others, by my actions. And I'll say that one more time and I'll say it correctly this time. I judge myself by my intentions, but I judge others by their actions. Asking the question, how do you experience me, opens us up to painful relational realities. The answers may be heavier than one has bargained for, and one may find that they've acted more like a gatekeeper rather than a bridge builder, a competitor, competitor in Christ's kingdom, rather than a child in his kingdom, 
and a fearful culprit of confusion rather than a lover. Facing where and how we mess up and fail God, others, and ourselves delivers us toward transformation and growth. We all face failure of some kind and seemingly fall short of the glory of God. The religious leaders in Matthew's gospel tried to manage the gates with tricks, but were sent away packing in silence. Failure, suffering, bumping heads with others are inevitable happenings in life in order for us to grow. And we hope to be edified toward a deeper love of God and our neighbor. May the chasms and contradictions between our intent to love and our actions, our spouse theologies and our theology and practice shrink and fade away. And may we not just talk about love, but put our love into action. Then it will truly be love. Amen. <laughs>